0: Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. In 1958, our Kenilworth Union forebears mortared these twelve stones into our cloister walk to tell the long, rambling story of Christianity. 12 stones from significant places in that story. It's a modest collection. The Tribune Tower on Michigan Avenue uses 149 stones to tell its story. 12 stones is not many to tell a long and rambling story. Storytellers, and I like to think of our cloister walk as a storyteller. Storytellers build a compelling story as much by what they leave out as what they include, yes? Have you ever heard your Uncle Charlie tell a story that was longer than Lent? (laughs) It's important what you leave out. What's striking about our cloister walk is what's not there. There's no stone from Rome, for instance, the capital city of Catholic Christianity, nor from Istanbul, the capital city of Orthodox Christianity, nor from Canterbury, the capital city of Anglican Christianity. Because those are things our ancestors decided not to be. They didn't want popes, and they didn't want bishops, and they didn't want ostentatious pageantry. They wanted a simple, humble, egalitarian Christianity. In a word, they wanted a congregational Christianity. And that is why in a modest spare collection of just 12 stones to tell a sprawling 3,500-year history, Three of the 12, or 25%, are pilgrim stones. Three of them tell the story of the first lasting English-speaking colony in the New World. It's a story that covers a mere 20 years. Why are they so important? The pilgrims. Well, I think I might have mentioned this to you before that I'm not sure there's meant to be a common theme to these 12 stones that tell our story. But if there is one, it seems to me that the common theme among everyone is the mind unfettered or the spirit unshackled. These 12 places are places where slaves are freed or revolutions are born or movements are made, the Christian Revolution or the Protestant Revolution or the American Revolution. These are places where brave but lonely pioneers stand up to prevailing authority and forge a new path. These are places where imposed doctrine and required ritual go to die. That's how our forebears from 1958 wanted us to understand ourselves, their descendants, until this walk crumbles to nothing. Which, of course, makes me ask the question, if we were to continue telling our story with newer stones, what would we put out there? The newest one right now is from the 18th century. What stones would we use to tell the story that goes forward from there? I met my friend Marty on the sidewalk out the church outside the church a couple of weeks ago while we were walking our dogs. Marty's mother was a German immigrant, and he speaks German fluently. And one day on the sidewalk, Marty said to me, I have a piece of the Berlin Wall. Do you want it for your cloister walk? I said, are you kidding me? I thought my friend Marty got it just right. The spirit unfettered. Now, Scrooby is a funny name and an odd place to include in our modest collection. It's a Nottinghamshire village in England, about 170 miles north of London. And even today, it's a tiny inconspicuous place, population 329. But at the end of the 16th century, Scrooby was home to an elegant and sprawling estate that belonged to the Archbishop of York. And the Archbishop would stay in Scrooby Manor when he had church business in the area. And the caretaker for the Archbishop's estate was a man named William Brewster. William Brewster was also the postmaster at Scrooby and William Brewster had a son whose name was also William, and young William was bright enough to matriculate at Cambridge University. And when young William left Cambridge University, he went into the diplomatic corps and served as an assistant to the brilliant and accomplished Secretary of State William Davison, who served under Queen Elizabeth I. But Secretary Davison's political panache disintegrated when Elizabeth gave him the unpopular and ugly task of seeing to it that Mary, Queen of Scots, was dispatched with expedition. Now, if you know your history, you know that Elizabeth I did not care a flying leap about religion. Rome, Greek, pagan, Anglican, it was all the same to her. She didn't care. She just wanted peace. So she wanted to take care of loyal Catholic Mary, Queen of Scots, but she didn't want to be responsible for killing the Queen of Scotland herself, so she gave the job to her henchman, Secretary of State. And then, when the Queen lost her head, Elizabeth wept inconsolably and pretended the whole thing was a huge misunderstanding. William Davison lost his job and also, of course, his assistant, William Brewster, who goes back home to Scrooby and takes his father's place as caretaker for the estate and Scrooby postmaster, which is a classic case of underemployment for a former Secretary of State assistant, don't you think? And while he's not mowing the lawns and making the beds and milking the cows and delivering the mail, young William Brewster starts holding worship services, with some odd Anglicans who have funny ideas about what the Church of Jesus Christ should look like. You see, here's the thing about the Church of England at the end of the 16th century, in the minds, at least, of William Brewster's Scrooby Congregationalists. It was entirely, too, Roman Catholic. Fifty years earlier, of course, Henry VIII had successfully calved off the Anglican Church from Mother Rome, but like a baby humpback whale swimming always just three feet behind and beside its mother, the Baby Church of England stuck very close to Mother Rome. Henry VIII loved everything about the Catholic Church except the Pope. He loved the theology, he loved the rituals, he didn't even mind the bishop. All he wanted was an annulment of his marriage so that he could have a male heir for the throne. And so he kept everything about Roman Catholicism. You saw Wolf Hall, right? And this just horrifies William Brewster and his Scrooby congregation. They don't want bishops. They don't want the Book of Common Prayer. They don't want the poofy vestments of the Anglican priest prancing down the aisle of the nave like a supermodel down the runway at a fashion show. They don't want an errant theology with the spooky claim that the Bread and wine of the sacrament literally, physically, chemically, actually becomes the body and blood of the Lord. They don't want anything to come between the individual Christian and her God. Just the Bible. God, the Christian, and the Bible. That's all they want. So they start worshiping in their own living rooms without the benefit of a priest or a church building. But this is illegal in 16th century England. You can't make this up as you go along, says the Archbishop of Canterbury. You need a book of common, you need a priest, you need a church building. This is illegal. Loyal Anglicans would call these folk from Scrooby nonconformists or sometimes Puritans. And neither of those labels is a compliment, of course. The English word Puritan is an almost literal translation of the old Aramaic word Pharisee, the people who enraged Jesus over and over and over again in the first century. The Puritans hated Christmas. The Puritans hated pinochle and poker and cards of any kind. They prohibited fun on the Sabbath. You've heard H.L. Mencken's definition of Puritanism, right? The haunting fear that someone, somewhere, is having a good time. That about sums it up. <laughs> and they, these separatist Puritans were so persecuted in their homeland that after a while, in 1607, they decide to emigrate to the more enlightened kingdom of the Netherlands. In fact, to the most diverse and liberal city in Europe, Leiden where they're welcomed with open arms, and they get minimum wage jobs working in the textile and printing industries, running thread through looms or paper through printing presses. They work very hard, and they stay there for 13 years. But it turns out that the Dutch are having as much fun as the Anglicans they left behind them in their homeland, and besides that, the Dutch have the awful habit of speaking Dutch. And you can't have a seven-year-old Englishman speaking with a Dutch accent. So these scrooby, scrooby Congregationalists decide to start all over again in the New World. And 102 of them charter two boats to go to Virginia Colony, their original destination. But they're barely out of sight of the English Isles when one of the boats starts taking on water. So they turn around, unload the passengers, and put all 102 on a 100-foot merchant ship called the Mayflower they get a late start it's September of 1620 it's harvest time in England and they know that there will not be another harvest in the New World for another year they have to sell some of their supplies to pay for the journey supplies that were supposed to equip their passage and their arrival there's no water on the Mayflower they drink beer There are no facilities, there are no showers. Of the 102 Mayflower passengers, 36 are children and three are pregnant. Two dogs also, a Mastiff and a Spaniel, and a crew of about 30 sailors. But the relations between the crew and the passengers aren't that great. One sailor is so hostile, he threatens over and over again to throw the pilgrims over the side of the boat into the restless deep. But what actually happens is the sailor falls ill, dies, and is buried at sea, and the pious pilgrims think, well, this is the hand of a righteous but angry God, right? Violent autumn storms toss them off course in the Atlantic, and they lose their way to Virginia and end up on Cape Cod. Only one of the passengers will die in this transatlantic crossing. And to compensate for that single death, God will see to it that a baby is born on the Mayflower en route to the New World so that the census at departure is the same as the census at arrival, 102. And can you guess what they named the baby born on this transatlantic crossing? Oceanus. And when they finally arrive at Plymouth Rock, there's no one to greet them and no one to feed them and no one to care for them, so they do the best they can to care for each other. It's November of 1620, early winter. By the following March, half of those 102 passengers will be dead. The captain and the crew of the Mayflower linger on Cape Cod all winter, before returning to England, partly to miss the winter weather, but also to make sure that the pilgrims can make a new life for themselves in the new world. And when the Mayflower finally departs for England in April of 1621, she goes without a single passenger. Not one pilgrim decides to go home. They are all in. And that was an early rip in the fabric of imposed doctrine. To change the metaphor, they'd stabbed a battle flag into the beach on Cape Cod Bay and 150 years later, Thomas Jefferson will pick that banner up and turn that freedom for worship into national policy. I don't like their severe and joyless theology, but I admire their tremendous undying courage. And ten years later, in 1630, John Winthrop will sail the Atlantic to preside over the new Massachusetts Bay Colony in Boston. And while still aboard the Arbella, he writes the most influential sermon in American history until Martin Luther King. The sermon is called A Model of Christian Charity. And the Reverend Winthrop's text is those words from the Sermon on the Mount I read a few moments ago A City set on a hill cannot be hid that's why they went to plant a beautiful home where the eyes of the world are watching and they wanted to become models of Christian charity for everyone someone once asked David McCullough why history is so important you know Mr. McCullough writes these beautiful books we can all understand about John Adams and Teddy Roosevelt and Harry Truman, among others. Someone asked Mr. McCullough once why history was so important, and he responded, to remind ourselves how hard it was to get here. Yes, to remind ourselves how hard it was to get here. We are all standing on the shoulders of ancestors far braver than we. So shall we honor their memory by becoming models of Christian charity. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please pray with me once more. God, we thank you for your word unfolded to us today. We thank you for models of faith and courage that have gone before us. Help us to be worthy of their witness.